Tonight I'd like to talk about time. That's why I was taking my time getting started this evening. Actually, I'd like to uh, title this evening's talk At the Still Point of the Turning World. The Still Point of the Turning World, the words of T.S. Eliot. And I especially was thinking about this today um, after knowing that I wanted to give a, a talk on, um, on time and its influence in our lives and how much it affects our practice. Uh, after hearing Guy's uh, discourse last night about, um, about our mutual friend who was, um, was held on for dear life, who clung to dear life um, during the tsunami, I remembered... Uh, a, I think it was a 60 Minutes broadcast where they featured a tribe on, the, uh, on one of the obscure coasts of Burma. And the tribe is called the Mokin, I think. And the Mokin, just the story behind them is they, um, they live very nomadically, they live very simply, very much of the earth. And they understand the rhythms of nature, the time, etc. And when the tsunami came, they um, were doing their fishing, their fishing culture. They were doing their fishing right next to a uh, community of Burmese people who shared the, the, uh, the seas with them. The Burmese people who live in homes, who were somewhat removed from the rhythms of nature, to, uh, relatively speaking. As the conditions of the tsunami began to brew, they knew something was up long before the Burmese. And they, I think they even gave some kind of warning. I'm not sure if I remember it correctly. But they managed to, as a whole community, uh, survive the tsunami. And their neighbors, the the Burmese fisher men and women, uh, did not survive. And it was because of their, their sense of resting, you could say, at that still point of the turning world, so immediate, so connected with life as it was unfolding, that they were able, over the course of, of centuries, of course they passed their, their understanding on, but what really met, brought their understanding alive was that sense of immediacy. And one of the most interesting things about the Mokan is there are two words that they don't have in their culture. The words want and the word when. Just, just, just drop that one for a moment. Drop when for a moment and what happens. Drop want for a moment and what happens. What happens to time? So all of us in our own ways have been talking about, really, um, in describing the various um, ways that our mind works and uh, the ways that they become filled with fear, and difficult emotions, uh, judgments, etc. And the other night I talked about the uh, three main kinds of uh, ways that our mind proliferates and on one hand, the, the wanting and the aversive mind, the, the, um, the, the proliferation of thoughts around uh, wanting something and pursuing something, the, the proliferation of thoughts about becoming someone, um, and the proliferation of thoughts that really is very much embedded in that state of becoming, uh, the proliferation around the comparing mind or different kinds of pride. And each of those, as I was reflecting on it, each of those is, if unnoticed, as is any thought unnoticed, uh, the cause of or uh, could be called the trance of time. Because in each case, these little narratives that flow through our mind, unnoticed, create that 
that image of um, the imagined one. And that image is always dependent on having been somewhere before, somehow passing through this present moment and whatever the, the issue is, on our way to somewhere else. And this is the... And so in our minds, we literally create the sense of, of self in those thoughts and create the sense or trance of time. And even as I speak to you tonight, I, I am sitting here and in, when I'm actually with you, I, I can't very easily find time. But yet my mind makes these, uh, these concepts and makes them so real and that I can literally wander a long time confused in the concept of past, future, and even the concept of present. And as I mentioned the other night, all of this happens with a simple, with these simple unfolding present moments of contact at one of the different sense doors. Now just a little bit of contact produces that feeling. And that feeling simultaneously arises with with some kind of perception of what that is, and when the, that process is unnoticed, and even if it is noticed, you can see how it just how that one thought leads to another. Pretty soon, that simple experience gets co-opted by the, the a view, a perception called of uh, that so, of someone who it's happening to, and depending on the charge that's produced of liking or disliking, the entrance into time into the imagined past or the imagined future goes one way or the other. Either goes, we either head to the past to fix what needs to be fixing from back there as though there is one, and, or it goes to the imagined future, uh, fantasizing, worrying, um, hoping, expecting, waiting, um, anxious, all the different manifestations. And it feels from the perspective of our conventional uh, viewpoint that this is really about me and, and I am. I'm here and I'm going somewhere. It's so easy to forget in all these hours sitting on the cushion or our whole lives that in truth we've never gone anywhere that we've only ever been right where we are. All, all points in this, in this life, at any point that we point to, that moment was now. At any point that we imagine in the future, if that, if that were to be real, it would be now. That there really is only this as Alan Watts calls it, this eternal now. This profound drama that plays through our mind and shapes our perception of reality uh, is um, really just starts with these little moments. But each time we take birth into one of those um, lifetimes, going from past through the present to the future, we literally, until that is noticed as a thought stream or as, a, as an identity, we, we're forced in some way, we're bound. That identity is bound in time. We're bound to have to live out that lifetime. And we can, we can wander a long time. And when I was thinking about this today, I was thinking about the, um, the realization that happened for the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, where he realized that, that, uh, that his 
true nature was outside of time. His true nature was unborn, uncreated, unconstructed, unconditioned. And interestingly enough, and and this may simply be a way that I understand this passage, he let out a song uh, after his awakening that really describes having been dragged, driven, um, absorbed in the trance of time over and over and over again in his own way. As many beings do when they have some kind of epiphany, they let out a song. And his, (laughs) not I am like the wind. (laughs) I think that song also reflects having stepped out of time. But here's what the Buddha sang. Supposedly, his first poem, through many births, and you can think of each time we enter into one of the trances that you've probably entered thousands of times on this retreat alone. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again. I really take as the thought worlds, the time trances gone unnoticed. In the recognition of these trances of time, and why I'm speaking of this tonight is because it's possible to, and I feel really passionate about this because it's been so important in my own practice, it's possible to begin to recognize all of the different ways that we get entranced into Part two of why I can't be happy now. So I'll I'll read again. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again. Housemaker, you've been seen. You shall not make a house again. Means you won't be deluded by what your mind does. Again, that's a pretty potent lion's roar. Someone who, who says, this will not catch me again. I will not enter one of these worlds and not know it. Is that possible? It's a very interesting question in my mind anyway. Oh, housemaker, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. All your beams are broken up, which is... Beams are often translated as the defilements, as the hindrances. All your beams are broken up, rafters of the ridge destroyed. That rafters of the ridge is considered ignorance, delusion. The mind gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation, it has come. So that was fine for the Buddha. And it's a very inspiring passage to me because I realize that, um, that every moment that I make that, um, that shift from being entranced by this, the concept of past and future in my mind and even present, every time I make that shift, I am and you are one and the same as the Buddha. Maybe slightly sleepier Buddha, but a Buddha nevertheless. <laughs> and an awakening Buddha who's realizing the Dharma at that moment. But we're mostly used to being entranced. And so I find it useful to see how it is that these thoughts um, color um, our reality. And I like the way, um, I know Guy quoted Eckhart Tolle last night. Uh, He had a beautiful description of what happens uh, to our experience of the present moment. How the present moment is so um, obscured, it's so colored by our, um, our thoughts of time. 
And he says that basically three things happen. The present moment, depending on what's in our mind, depending on our perception, becomes either a means to an end, just the pass-through on our way to somewhere else, becomes an obstacle, or becomes the enemy. And for most of us, and I think it's a very strong cultural thing, it is a combination of all of those things. And I think of it as a means to an end because most often our mind, at least as a, um, as a, a culture of becomers, and maybe that's just the human condition. Obviously it was during the time of the Buddha. I don't think there's anything new under the sun. But much of our, our space and time is occupied with a kind of obsession with what next. A tendency to be um, in our minds kind of leaning, toppled forward, kind of fixed on, on the notion that the best is yet to come. And I'm not sure how much I've spoken of this in the retreat, but I, I really started to notice this in my own practice that I had a kind of list of things, both in my daily practice and in my retreat practice. I had a list of things that somehow needed to happen in order to find what I call the end of the rainbow. And that I started to see, no matter what it was that was producing the trance that somehow something needed to change in order to find home, in each case, there was the belief that at the end of that rainbow, at that point that I found what I was looking for, I don't know what kinds of trances you've, what kind of, what's on your list here. Is it your mind being peaceful? Is it having no more this or no more that? Is it, um, is it, it may be at this point, I know Guy mentioned it this morning, it may be the end of the retreat. It may be the end of this talk. It may be the end of the day. But in a more, in a more kind of life direction way, there's a tendency to, to have some, something that we make as a condition. Something in the imagined future that we make as a condition for, um, for feeling okay. And the expected feeling embedded in the fantasy, the expected sense that we have when all is said and done at the end of the rainbow is, in general, and I think this is pretty universal, the sense of, ah, I've arrived. I'm home, finally. And then I started thinking about this, this particular trance of happiness in the future, and it it dawned on me that tethering my ah to the future was holding my mind, my body, my heart hostage to something that could never deliver. That there there was a realization there is no salvation at the end. And so if you're, and what happens when I held that expectation, the demand that the future bring that great relief, I always, and maybe you in your own experience, always had a feeling of anxiety, worry, wonder whether or not things were going to turn out right. And it's I've come to appreciate even more that it's appropriate to wonder. It's appropriate to be nervous about that because it won't deliver. You won't reach that end of the rainbow because you've already reached it. You already are the end of the rainbow. You already are the Buddha. As Kala Rinpoche says, why don't you see this? Because there's a veil in the way. Such is the belief that you're not. He 
says if you can remove this veil just even one time, you can refer to this all the time. This is our practice of mindfulness, referring again and again, as much as we're able, to this ever-present, ever-available mindfulness, or you could call it presence. I know Heather alluded to this Alan, this, um, Alan Watts passage the other night about the, the trance of, of becoming, the trance of time. And his, this passage, he says, when we make music, uh, we don't do it in order to reach a certain point, such as the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, then obviously the fastest players would be the best. (laughs) Also, when we're dancing, we're not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floor, as in taking a journey when we dance, the journey itself is the point. And exactly the same is true of our life and our practice. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in this immediate moment. Therefore, if you meditate with an ulterior motive to improve your mind, to improve your character, to be more efficient in life, you've got your eye on the future and you're not actually practicing. Future is a concept, doesn't exist. Trouble, we sometimes practice because we think it's good for us. We do it kind of as a grim duty. Trouble with religions today is it's too mixed up with grim duties. You do it because it's good for you, a kind of self-punishment. Meditation, when correctly done, has nothing to do with all that. It's a kind of digging the present. It's a kind of grooving with the eternal now. It brings us into a state of peace where we can understand that the point of life The place where it's at is simply here and now. Now I say that, and I've said it over and over and over again. I think we all said it. And we were joking that there's really only one talk that's ever given, in a way. Um, But how, how many of us truly believe that? How many of us actually know with conviction and confidence that you don't need to lift out of this instant to find relief. Whether you believe it or not, the experience of being present and that increased sense of presence begins to to, um, show us. And I know that over the course of these almost two weeks, the present has become likely a lot more interesting and compelling, and the desire to be somewhere else has probably diminished. This means that you've awakened a little more. Your sense of being present is starting to be a little stronger than and capable of accommodating and recognizing all the different trances that some ways obscure the present moment, take us out of, at least in our imagination, take us out of an appreciation of right where we're sitting. You're also likely much more clear, something you can begin to notice even in more subtle ways, how the how depending on the particular trance that's in our mind, how the present becomes an obstacle to getting where we think we want to go. And this you would experience as what often people do. And actually it's starting, it seems like the wave of the retreat is is sliding a little past this, but about the 10-day period, there was an enormous amount of aversion in the air. And, and there's still, of course, there will be. There, it cycles. It is a roller coaster ride. We, we touch 
the, ex the levels and the experiences of purity and fall in love with purity of mind, the mind that's un uncluttered for a moment. But that just creates the conditions, the openness, the relaxation for whatever else is, is be, has been bound to, to discharge, to rise to the surface, to the serpents to, to rise. I think Carol may have alluded to that in one of her, her talks. But nevertheless, we can really see the way the, the states of mind that present themselves in the different forms of aversion can color the present moment in such a way that it's absolutely um, convincing and certain that somebody needs to get their act together or something needs to change in order for me to find any relief. And it expresses itself, as most of you veterans know, as the phenomena on retreat called the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where someone triggers a little contact, unpleasant association, a neighbor, what they're saying, what they're doing, a person in the lunch line, a person in the kitchen, and without any, and without mindfulness at that moment, which we're we have less practice at being mindful than being aversive, so we have to be merciful about that. But before you know it, that person becomes the secret, the reason for all of your misery. <laughs> and then the mind just goes into that trance, into that trance. And it's so easily obscured that it is not that person that has that is really ultimately causing the problem. On the conventional level, you can say that that person's very related to why I'm feeling so miserable or that situation. But it's really what's bringing such a tremendous sense of dis-ease is the body's, this is the way I was thinking about it today, the body's reaction to having left the present moment having left a sense of being really present, have leaked, have leaked our vitality into, in a sense, self-abandoned, given ourselves completely to a situation or a person that is really, in some ways, because it's mostly in our imagination, that's out of our control. Meanwhile, leaving a gaping a gaping wound in our heart because it's, we haven't attended to ourselves. We've gone out of ourselves in search of relief. We've gotten, in, we've gotten locked into the trance of time. So you can feel when you're you can feel what it's like. We did a, it's, uh, the teachers at Spirit Rock had a retreat um, this summer with, um, with a, a couple teachers came and they, one of them gave, presented the concept of the, uh, of the body of the Buddha, the Buddha body. You can feel as you sit here, when you're really present, there's a kind of vitality that comes, a kind of inexhaustible resource sense of immediacy, that sense of aliveness, a kind of Buddha body that's not limited so much just to your skin. You can kind of sense the, the field around you, and, and there's, a, there's a natural vitality to it. And when, when we're present a lot, that just grows and grows, and it grows as a sense of, you know, I notice that people's postures, even in the course of two weeks, are kind of straightening up. This is partly from, from mingling with this um, with our nature, our immediate nature, our Buddha nature. But when we um, excessively live in the trance of time, excessively live in the imagined future, we experience a lot of unease. This is the effect over time. A lot of unease, a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension, a lot of stress, a lot of worry, and all the different forms of fear. 
are really in some ways, and, and this is not meant to be any, any kind of critique or criticism, it's meant to just be to just sense how this is. This is the result of losing over and over contact with the present moment, contact with wakefulness. And that happens excessively over and over. And what happens to our vitality? It just drains out. And we experience it uh, as we experience the same loss of vitality when we've uh, spend, spent excessive amounts of um, mental energy, been entranced by uh, thoughts of the past, guilt, experienced as guilt, regret, resentment. Of course, we've come by these experiences that have triggered these reactions, we've come by them, we've come to them quite innocently through, through so many um, non-personal experiences of attack and blame and ignorance and trauma of all sorts. But nevertheless, the effect has been to lose the sense of our Buddha nature. And so we use all of these experiences all of these expressions of the time trance, we use them all as the reminder not to keep feeding the internal dramas, not to keep trying to fix the internal dramas and spinning out farther into that kind of proliferation, but instead to use each each experience as that springboard, as that um, reminder of our love of being present. So there are no um, ultimate, and this is a kind of challenging thing for me, for me to work with because I have my views and opinions about how things should be and people should be, and, and I can easily convince myself of how everyone or certain beings should be different. But I'm practicing in my own way, noticing how I create the present moment in the form of, of having um, enemies or having uh, notions of someone or something causing my dis-ease, where the present does turn into an enemy that has to be conquered or an obstacle that has to be gotten through, rather than as a reminder of my true home. Just a, a very simple example of how we get entranced in the uh, kind of aversive, um, aversive time trance. This is a story of a woman who wants some potatoes for a meal she's cooking. So she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door, she calls after him, be sure and get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the very best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than top-priced potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. When he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. Do you think he's gotten a little distant from his true nature? (laughs) I'll, I'll read on. He continues, Why do people have to be so greedy as to stick me with a rotten potato? Just at the point that he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him, You can keep your rotten potatoes, and walks off. Fortunately, we, we can wake up from these kinds of internal dramas. But in the meantime, they really make us feel that we have gotten completely separated from, from home, from a sense of relief. And truly, and you've probably seen this over and over, that nothing's really happened. 
except a drama that played through our mind. But unnoticed, it proliferates, and then it shapes our life. And then you yell at someone, and it comes back at you, and the wheel keeps going on and on. So a great place to watch the trance of time is working with the, the hindrances that are really the practice from the beginning right to the end. The hindrance of the, of the mind obscured by wanting that's always toppling us forward into some, some belief that uh, relief is, is ahead. One of the, um, because I've given a lot of talks over the years on the hindrances, uh, one year I was preparing a talk on the hindrances, and I, this is a long time ago now, it was the year that the movie um, As Good As It Gets came out with Jack Nicholson, and I was so struck that um, this, the, the real key scene in the movie, where he walks into the therapist's office and looks around at all the people, and he says, what if this is as good as it gets? <laughs> And it struck me as such a great inquiry question for us on, a, on an ongoing basis. So deeply are we embedded in that trance of, of wanting, of waiting, of hoping, expecting, of, of toppling forward into that future trance to cut through with the sense of, what if this is as good as it gets? Really try that on for a moment. At least when I, th- when I think of it, I step out of that time trance. It makes me, it has the effect of me really seeing, is there anything missing now? And when I keep asking that question, I can't, when I'm actually this present, I can't even find unless I consult my memory, of course, I can't find any suffering. And where did I go? I didn't move an inch. It makes me think of a teaching from Punjaji, who Guy mentioned last night and uh, I have before. He had this funny exercise where he would ask people, how long does it... um, take to, and this was in Hardwar, he said, how long does it take to get to New Delhi? And everybody would raise their hand, eager to answer the teacher's question. They'd say, well, six hours by, by car, seven hours by bus, uh, four hours by train. And he'd, he'd sit back and he'd kind of rock his head and with that impish grin on his face, well, how long does it take to find yourself? And of course, in, in the presence, the meaning of that, you know, you can think of finding yourself as this great journey into the imagined future, or you can realize that finding yourself is really simply turning to look at who it is that's sitting in front of your own hearth. So these dramas that, from the perspective of, of pure awareness, of just being here, are just a dream. And we just have a lot of daydreams. And they really are not unlike the dreams that happen at night. And we're not so critical of the ones we have at night, but the tendency to be a little more critical of the ones in the daytime. But really, if we could relate to them as dreamscapes, to make that shift from from either to become lucid in our dreaming, to know we're dreaming, to know we're thinking of the future, know we're thinking of the past, know we're creating an idea of present, placing ourselves in space and in time. To know that, 
is to be free of it. To be free of, of that imagined somebody. Tony Packer, wonderful teacher, said, Pure awareness is the silence of all habitual efforts to get someplace. It is the absence of any sense of me in time. See if that's true right now. Just aware. See in this true immediacy. Where is time now? Where is the past now? Where is the future now? As Ajahn Chah put it, no me, no you, no self at all. Just what there is. Did we all disappear? No. Full living color. All we did for a moment is drop the trance of time. Drop the trance of somebody. It's our happiest moments. And it takes no effort. Of course, the effort is to remember. <laughs> Seems obvious that it takes a lot of effort. But we use what's in our mind, the effort to notice what's in our mind, we use it to remind ourselves. And we begin to see in our own way the way that the way we create the sense of the past, sense of the future, sense of the present. And of course we are conditioned so much by the conventional use of time. You could call it the the um, date time, you know, the, the calendar, the Today is the 14th of February. Today is Valentine's Day. When we close our eyes, can you tell it's Valentine's Day? But this sense of Valentine's Day is beautiful. It has a very wonderful conventional use, other than the hallmark side of it. It's got a wonderful reminder of goodwill and love. And I know that Heather said to think of the arrows of love going everywhere. And it's useful as a concept, concept of the date, February 14th. It's a place that we can gather around. It's, it's communal in a way to have this agreed upon conceptual overlay on our reality. But you can see that this special day, the 14th of February, for some of us it's moving quickly, some of us it's moving slowly, too slow, too fast. And this depends on our perception. But nevertheless, this day, as defined in our, in our conventional way of thinking, had a beginning, it had a middle, and it will have an end as will this retreat, as will this life. That's just part of the conventional flow of time. And this is just nature. Now in one way, it's, we create in our mind a picture of going from the beginning of the day, which is, for some people, it's on the left, and it goes to the right in your mind. Have you ever noticed that? But isn't it true that the day just, it doesn't move. I like to sense of it as an unfolding, present. See, it's hard to talk about time, especially hard to talk about the timeless. 
But time as a concept and a, as a, as a uh, natural reality is, is um, in, it, in the form of cycles and waves and, and the way it organizes our, our world is a fact of a certain sort. And we can see, as I, in the last uh, 24 hours, I went from hardly being able to walk. I had a, in the lunch line yesterday, I, because of my first malady of having a cold, I reached over to the side to cough, and right in the middle of the cough, an unprompted sneeze came, which was kind of violent, and it tweaked my back. <laughs> and 24 hours later, the beautiful function of time is it's healing. So, <laughs> and, I actually, and I can actually sit here completely pain-free for right now anyway. Wait till I try to get up, but... <laughs> But time allows us to mature, it allows us to, um, to heal, the gradual opening and developing of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom, of love, of compassion, all those qualities, they, they take time. But that process of the time that it takes to heal, we truly never leave that immediate present. And it's only our mind that creates the idea that we went somewhere from the past to the future. I like this short passage from Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. So everything it has a rhythm in this unfolding present. And there's such a difference between the process of life and the seasons and the way the water fills the streams and the picture that gets created in our mind of over there and over here, all of it happening in this unfolding present. And I think it's important to really reflect on the movement of time, this conventional movement of time. Because, as I said, this retreat will be over, and I want to be able to say at the end of the retreat, this went... I really, I really did this, knowing it has an end, knowing that I'm likely at the end, as in another present moment, I'm likely to reflect on how it, went, how it went. And so I will experience in that present moment the fruits of what I've been thinking about, where, how, how little or how much energy I gave to the practice. And this is a, for me, it's a, a useful reflection on time. But I realize that when I reflect back on the retreat, I realize when I'm thinking of the past, I'm actually quite present. That the past, that there never was a, a past. There were only these successive unfolding present moments is one way of taking, talking about it. So in thinking about the movement of time, I think about the the passage of this life and the poignancy of, of how short and precious it is. And so having that, that reflection and that sensibility um, kind of brings it alive in a certain way, brings alive this immediate present. found this little bit of trivia today called uh, One Life, One Life, 100 Years, 400 Seasons, 1,200 Months, 5,218 Weeks, 36,521 Days, 876,504 Hours, 52,590,240 Minutes, 
3,155,414,400 seconds. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> and just think from the beginning of this retreat the amount of breaths. And so on one level, there have been countless breaths that have passed in time. And that's from a certain conventional understanding of time. But from a more immediate sense, if we want to really get subtle about it, this in the direct experience of this moment, free of the concept of self, which then adds the concept of breath, the beginning, middle, and end, and all of those concepts as well that have a certain conventional usage, if you really are quite present, there is no such thing as a breath. There are just these, at best, flickering sensations, flickering in this timeless present. The invitation of our practice is to appreciate the countless breaths we've taken. But usually, if I start thinking about how many breaths I'm taking, I've taken, I will start thinking of myself as somebody who breathes, and then pretty soon I'm off on a, on a story about, God, so many breaths. You know, the breath really is, you know, it's very interesting sometimes, but then sometimes it's not so interesting. And, you know, I'm actually sick of paying attention to my breath, and Maybe I should find another, and I've gotten into the whole world of time. All starting from that simple concept of of breath. As long as there's a breath, there's in some small measure the trance of time. Just experimenting with the sense there's never been a breath. Stepping out of time. So just a little bit more about our perception of time because we know that in the quiet we know that, that time is not an, an ultimate fact. It's a more conventional or relative fact. So we can see, because it's not an ultimate fact, we can see that it is, it is um, our experience of it is really very dependent on that third third little skanda, that, that the way our mind thinks about it, recognizes something, and then, and then noodles around about it. And, for example, there's a tribe in Zaire called the Lingala who don't have the concept, not unlike the Mokan, don't have, like the Mokan don't have the concept of when or want. And so clearly, their perception of time is very different. The, the Lingala have only two expressions to designate time. Obviously, colors their perception. Their two, their two um, expressions are now and not now. And there's another tribe. This one really bent my mind when I first heard it. It's another, pro, uh, another tribe that, and we don't even realize the extent that we, are, uh, that we are experiencing our life through this trance. Their view of the past is that it's, you know, we, where do we put past? Behind. And we put the future in front. We look forward. We have those expressions. Or look back. And that's just taken for granted, not realizing that how that impacts on our, on our minds. Well, this culture has the past in front, because you can see it, and the future behind, because you can't. So try that one on for a moment. <laughs> Speed affects our perception of time, how fast we move, how slow we move, the pleasant and the unpleasant. Usually when things are pleasant, time 
moves kind of uh, moves kind of gracefully, not um, not so difficult. When things are unpleasant, it moves interminably slow. Einstein put it this way: When a man sits with a pretty woman for an hour, it feels like a minute. But let him sit on a hot stove for a minute, and it will seem longer than any hour. This is relativity. (laughs) And Henry Van Dyke, his poem that was uh, recently made more famous by being read at Princess Di's funeral, Time is too slow for those who wait, too slow for those who fear, too long for those who grieve, too short for those who rejoice. But for those who love, time is eternity. Hafez says in his poem called Just Sit There. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. reminding us of all the work to get somewhere else entranced in in time and the effortlessness of being right where we are. I think I'll end with a short passage from T.S. Eliot. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time fa- in time past if all time is eternally present all time is unredeemable what might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. And one last passage from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Once you understand that the f- once you understand that the false needs time and what needs time is false you are near the reality which is timeless ever in the now reality is what makes the present so vital so different from past and future which are merely mental the real is always with you You need not wait to be what you are. Only you must not allow your mind to go out of yourself in search. When you want something, ask yourself, do I really need it? And if the answer is no, let it be, let it go. Nothing can make you happier than you are. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of being present.
may all beings make peace with the flow of time, the trances of time. May all beings realize the timeless. So thank you for your attention. Did that seem long time or short? Anyway, thank you for your long enduring attention. It was a little long. We have about a half hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.